netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. This is the podcast where we talk with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. The FX podcast is just one of the things we do here at FX Guide. Be sure to check out all of the other podcasts at fxguide.com slash podcasts. So we're going to dive into a new television show in the Marvel Universe, Agent Carter, in just a minute. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know that the new January 2015 term has started over at fxphd.com. This term, we have new courses covering such things as 3D Equalizer, Cinema 4D, RealFlow, RenderMan, and one I'm very excited about, Flame 209, Flame Masters 2, which is featuring three artists, Sam Edwards, John Fegan, and Scott Balcom. Scott has done some amazing work with particles, stuff that most of us would have said, just do it in a different system. It's just not possible in Flame. But Scott has really pushed the Flame particles into real productions, and they look great. We also have a new director of photography course titled Making a Dramatic Difference, where we move past the gear and talk about blocking, coverage, and audio, the keys for making a good edit and visual interest. So there's lots of new courses over at FXPHD to choose from, and you can also uh, check out the courses that are available as vault courses, previous courses that have run that you can check out, uh, all of which starts at $299. Take your career to the next level with FXPHD. Now, our guest today is no stranger to either FX Guide or FX PhD. Sheena Duggle has appeared frequently on both sites. In fact, I just mentioned vault courses at FX PhD, and Sheena can be found there as professor of VFX 220 feature film visual effects supervision. Today, she chats with Mike Seymour about the new Marvel TV series, Agent Carter. So let's join that conversation now. Mike Seymour speaking with Sheena Duggle. So I'm joined on the line by Sheena. How are you? Haven't spoken to you in a little while. You've been very busy I have been very busy. I'm very well, thank you, Mike. So this uh, project, congratulations. It's terrific to see a lot of aspects about this. It's terrific to see Marvel doing such great work in television. It's terrific to see a, a female lead character actually anchoring a show. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's a bit of a passion project for a bunch of us over at Marvel who um, did the, uh, the short last year for Agent Carter that was premiered at Comic-Con. Um, and then was released on the Iron Man 3 DVD. Um, and that was actually what inspired, uh, you know, Disney ABC to um, want to go ahead and make a TV show of this character. Though they should have kept your title sequence from the short because I thought you did a great job on the graphic design on that. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. I had the most fun. Um, I've had a long time doing that, and uh, it was quite a privilege Um for me to have Marvel, you know, Louis Desposito was the director of the show, um, you know, give me the opportunity to do that and just have the faith um, that he put in me to uh, to come up with something that was really good and everybody loved it. So, of course, we've spoken to you several times here at FX Guide about projects that you've worked on, but you are one of a relatively small number, a shamefully small number of women that have senior lead roles in the visual effects uh, industry. So there's kind of a, a double layer there, isn't there, about the significance of the role of women as depicted in the first couple of eps that just have aired? Yes, yes, it's definitely not lost on us where, as we're working on the show that... Um, that yeah, women have different challenges um, in the workplace, and and that's actually still true even in this day and age, unfortunately. 
Now, of course, uh, we know, but just for those that don't, it, it isn't just this. This isn't your first uh, Marvel um, outing. In fact, you've done work with the Marvel team in various capacities, uh, in addition to the work that we've spoken to you about with uh, other uh, A-grade directors. Yes, I have. Um, well, I have a great relationship with, um, talking of great women, um, Victoria Alonso, and um, she's a producer, one of the trifecta of you know brilliant producers over there at Marvel, her, Lou, and, and Kevin are really, you know, the, the people with the secret source that know and understand what their viewers are looking for. And she um, she runs the visual effects over at Marvel, and I work with her in the past. And, um, you know, she's definitely a woman who walks the walk, and, uh, and she's brought me into the, the Marvel family, and it really is a family um, over there. And uh, and I feel pretty fortunate to be working as part of that team. And she is somebody who definitely supports women um, in the visual effects industry. And she supports the people who work for her um, in a way that I, you know, I don't think many other studios can because they're not the producers as well as the people managing the visual effects process. So what Victoria is able to do is is she's able to... Um, affect not just hiring the people who do the visual effects and helping us and supporting us and making sure that we get to work with the best talent in the world but actually when it comes to the work that you're doing on set she will come to set she'll be on set she'll talk to you she'll understand you know what the issues are that visual effects supervisors face on set in terms of how we work and integrate with the production side crew and so What's happened over the years is the, the Marvel family is a, is a it's a team of people who get hired over and over again on a lot of these big blockbuster visual effects movies. And so they've kind of become trained in the ways of how we, how we need to shoot, how we need to work as far as visual effects are concerned. And Victoria's been very helpful in, in that process in that she invites like the costume and the makeup and all the different people. When we when there's an issue on set where maybe we have to do a makeup fix because it didn't quite work out, there's te- normally a disconnect mm. between what's happening in production and what's happening in post. Well, Victoria kind of bridges that disconnect in, in, in many ways. And so she's able to kind of bring people into our part of the process and help them understand, you know, what what the effect of, of a certain thing is on, on the post-production process. So anyway, I'm rambling a little bit, but, but you, en- you end up with a group of, of very visual effects savvy production people that you can work with um, and that understand what it is you're doing. So when I walk on set and I have Victoria's and, and Lou and Kevin's backing, um, it's, it's easier for me than walking on a set where I don't have that, you know, um, that group of people standing behind me, particularly as a woman um, in a technical position, you know, you have to work quite hard to get people to be convinced that you know what you're doing and you know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's an ironic situation, isn't it? Because we, we don't want to single you out for being a woman visual effects supervisor as if somehow this is um, the important aspect about your work. But by the same token, we actually want more women in visual effects. So I do want to, I do want to mention it. And we, you know, and this is the, this is an interesting conversation, Mike, because there are a lot of women in visual effects. Um, you know, a lot of the women who are producers in visual, sorry, yeah, of, nearly all the producers, yeah, 
almost all the producers are women. A lot of the support staff, the coordinators, a lot of roto artists, there's a lot of compositors, there, yep. there, are, there are animators. There, there, there are a lot of women who just aren't, who, who we couldn't actually do the type of work that we do without their skill set as part of the process, who actually are not necessarily in creative roles, um, but but I think the job of producing is actually creative in a different kind of way, and I and I think that um, that they should be recognised equally as as much as the visual effects supervisors are, and and I hope that that changes. It certainly isn't that way, you know, when it comes to Emmys, and when it comes to other awards. Um, uh, processes, producers get recognized for best picture, they get recognized for a lot of things, but they don't in visual effects, which is, is actually a crime shame. And in fact, it's probably more so in television because, you know, for example, on your show, uh, you have multiple directors, whereas obviously on a feature film, there's, there's a director. When you're into episodic television, and certainly I've done it, there's multiple directors because they're overlapping production schedules. The roles of the producers are far more sort of centrally related to that continuity that you require for any creative project. Yes, absolutely. I have a great producer working with me right now, Eddie Manis, and um, I found her through my long-time producer, Jackie Barnbrook, that I've worked with. Um, she did Cosmos with Addie, and um, Addie came on to Agent Carter with me. And it's an interesting arc, isn't it? Because when I first met you, God, way back when, <laughs> we were doing flame and stuff and at the early days of digital compositing it was star trek the next generation and the episodic television that kind of pioneered that well before ilm even had that kind of hardcore uh digital bent it was really a, an optical base and then all of that digital technology went as it was from standard def which is what that sort of star trek stuff was up to film res and then of course film took off as the gold standard for all the digital work and it always felt for a while there that television effects were kind of second rate and a bit cheesy compared to feature film stuff but that's really changing now because the the, the audience just demands that the episodic television effects just cut it and of course i imagine marvel does as well given that it's such a premier um property yeah you're absolutely right it's a very interesting arc indeed um and you know i think it's worth saying that there is a big difference between network tv and cable tv so, you know, Black Sails, Game of Thrones, Boardwalk Empire, Pacific, those types of shows, they, the, the paradigm is a, is a lot more like a feature film um, paradigm in terms of the schedule um, and time that they have to, to shoot and execute. And we're, we're shooting a new episode every eight days. Um, and we, we started episode one... Um, we didn't have the script for episode two, and it's kind of been like that for the for the whole season. Um, so while we're shooting one episode, we are we're reading the script for the next episode that we're actually starting to prep, so that we're ready to shoot it in eight days. So it and and we're posting at the same time. We're reviewing hundreds of shots that are all in play at once. Um, and it, it, yeah, you know, it's um, it's a head spinner. I don't yeah. How significant was it that you got to work with Gabriel, or as you call him, Gabby, as this, the one cinematographer? Because while the, uh, the cinematography um, has got that constant, you don't have that, as I say, with the directors and with a bunch of the other teams that are sort of checkerboarding through the production. I, I take it having that one vision at the cinematography level is incredibly valid to the pipeline for your visual effects. 
Absolutely. Gabby, having Gabby in that position and having worked with Gabby consistently for the last couple of years, I think is huge plus uh, for us from a visual effects point of view. As you say, given the, the lack of consistency between directors and actually we've got different ADs doing alternate episodes as well and different editorial teams cutting the different episodes. So, um, so yeah, Gabby gives us, Gabby and I are kind of the gatekeepers of consistency, I think, visually. Um, as well as obviously some of the, the, the brilliant um, other production elements that we have in the show, like the costume design, GGR costume designer is doing a fantastic job. And of course, he has he has a lot of experience, apart from doing that uh, Agent Carter, uh, the one that we spoke about, the short, um, he did additional photography work on, on a lot of the Marvel properties, from Guardians to Iron Man to Avengers to whatever, right? I mean, he's yeah, uh, very skilled in the art. He is very skilled in the art, and he's very, very helpful, and he's very good to consult with, and I can sit down with him and say, hey, Gabby, I need to I need to achieve this, or we need this kind of lighting, and he will do everything in his power to, you know, support visual effects and make sure that we get everything we need. So, um, so, so can we discuss how you're doing the visual effects? Uh, because the other thing that's really interesting um, is the is the role that ILM has in this. Yes, uh, I, ILM. I have such a. I'm so grateful that we have ILM um, working with us on this project. I have a fantastic team of um, people over there, headed by uh, visual effects supervisor Richard Bluff. Um, and one of the reasons that I, that Richard was put on this project is because he headed up the matte painting generalist department. And when um, when we came, when we made the agreement to to sort of go ahead with ILM um, on this on this series, obviously it was it was a bit of a leap of faith on on all of our parts. Um, there was a moment in time where I did question whether I had made the right decision, um, just because the volume and the turnaround was so massive. And we had for for one or two. In order for those to air together, we had 400 shots in play, and we only had, you know, a couple of weeks really to get our act together on on a lot of this work. And so, um, so the way that we work, that we had to work with ILM is very transparent. We sort of agreed right from the outset that if, if we weren't, if we didn't have transparency, there was no way that we were going to be able to make this work. So I basically try to give ILM every single piece of information that I have. Obviously, I can't give them scripts and things like that, but I can give them a lot of very detailed information. And and obviously, because I'm shooting and prepping and posting all at the same time, I also um, don't have a lot of time to spend on the creative aspects like I normally would if I, if you were on a regular feature film schedule. So... Um, I work with ILM and their art director over there, Cody, who's done an amazing job for us, who, was, who, who comes from more of a generalist background. And he's been helping us design concept art. We've even actually been getting outlines from the writers ahead of time before we even got a script. And then talking to the writers and getting a sense of what their ideas are and then going to ILM and previsioning and boarding stuff before we have a script, before we have a director, so that we can have enough lead time to do some of these more complex visual effects that are happening. And and one of the blessings about having ILM as our vendor is they is they have a huge library of assets that we can use. Um, 
obviously there's there's a limited amount of stuff that you can create in CG and have it look as good as it needs to look um, within the time frame that we have. So what they've been doing is Cody, who's doing the, a lot of the concept work for us, is going to this library and he's only using elements from that library um, that, that exists photographically and he's designing around that concept and so they're doing that as much as they possibly can and then we're saving the full-on CG stuff for when we really really need it and it gives us more bang for our buck. You mentioned there that you had some nervousness about ILM and obviously I know you worked at ILM and we all know ILM's reputation so I know that you're not worried about them from the, the quality point of view. I'm wondering, a, a director once said to me that his concern when doing this work the way you are is, and I thought this was a way, really great way to articulate it, he said, the trouble is for the episodic work I need sprinters and for my feature film work I need marathon runners. And I'm wondering, was that part of your hesitation about having people work at such a pace? Uh, absolutely. That was absolutely part of the hesitation. And, you know, I've worked in big facilities. I've even worked in ILM, and so I understand um, the how those companies operate and I understand the structure of the pipeline and I understand why you need that big pipeline to push through large volumes of CG visual effect shots. Um, but, but what we're talking about is, is, is a different type of work. It's a, it's a different kind of pace. It's a different set. You can't, you don't have time to necessarily put all that through, through the big pipeline. And so, that, that was obviously at some point I was starting to get concerned about, well, you know, are they going to, I know they can do the work. I know they can do it to the quality that we're, we're looking back, looking at. I know they have the, I know they have the, the people um, and the skill set and the talent, but time was our problem. And so um, what they, what they did to solve the problem, obviously they're partnering with base in China. So base is taking on, a uh, certain portion of the work, the the less complex CG work and the more complex CG work is, is staying um, within ILM itself. But they teamed together generalists, and um, and so they, they came about it from a different point of view. You know, they, they, they found people who had, were jacks of all trades and, and were able to sort of build a team for our show with those types of people. People were also given a lot of creative freedom on this project. Um, you know, we're doing things like we needed some uh, nitrogen crystals for a shop where um, a scientist looking down a microscope. And rather than create those in CG, ILM put an, an all points bulletin out to people at ILM saying, hey, does anybody have a microscope? And of course it's ILM and there's lots of <laughs> intelligent people there. So there's a guy who has an electron microscope with a, with a camera attached to it. So he ended up shooting the footage for us. And that's what we have in the episode. And then um, there's another episode where we need a CG airplane. And so we have... Um, so, so they, they reached out to all the people who work at ILM, and there's a model builder who loves to build airplanes, and so we're actually building a model of the airplane. So, it became, so within ILM, it's become something that people are really excited about working on because they have a lot because they're getting this creative freedom that they don't typically have within the normal paradigm. And um, Richard was telling me that people were actually volunteering over the holidays to help work on the show. Because um, people are really excited about it. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned base effects as well. Because I was recently up in China and I got to hang out with Chris, the CEO, and 
I've been really impressed with bass, and I must admit I was one of those people that uh, wrongly painted them as more of a sort of a, you know, offshoot that only does, uh, I'm not going to say cheap and nasty, but, you know, like I had this mental picture of stuff being thrown to China and it was just, uh, but uh, bass, in fact, does great work in their own right and uh, obviously have built up a very good reputation with ILM over a number of projects. So I'm glad to hear that they were, were doing good work for you as well. Yeah, they're doing great work for us. Um, actually, Chad Taylor, who I worked with, he actually sat right next to me years and 20 years ago when I worked at um, ILM. Uh, he was a fellow flame artist. I don't know if you know Chad. And he's actually over He's actually over at Embase uh, working on our show, helping us, um, supervising um, the team over there. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing the stuff that's happening up in China. Though I, I must admit, I I shouldn't have laughed, but somebody said that they were losing a lot of work because it was going to to other countries, Korea and places, because of subsidies and things, and they were having a problem because there was no money to keep stuff in China. And I was just like, I, I did a double take the thought of China losing work to other people. But um, yeah, it's a very different, expanding market. So so let's get to the show itself, and and it's great fun, and obviously it's a period piece. I'm getting a I'm going to guess that a significant part of your work was to make, I don't know, you shot in L.A., right? So L.A. looked like New York just, just in terms of matte paintings and set extensions. Did you, did you go for matte paintings in the traditional sense or were they all digital environments? That's a good question, Mike. We did both in this. Um, uh, we, we spent a lot of time on studio backlots that looked like New York. And um, so we, when we shot one of the times that we shot Warner Brothers, ILM came down and they lidared. Um, New York Street, and so we were able to do some pretty impressive uh, set extensions using that geometry, um, creating like um, canyon avenues uh, uh, of the type of thing you would have seen in New York in the 40s. Um, and then every establishing shot that you see is either stock footage that we've taken and made to, to look like 1940s, i.e. removed modern elements and added um, period parts to it, or, um, you know, we leveraged off assets that we already had. So ILM had a lot of assets from Avengers, interestingly enough, um, that they were able to, of New York. And so they had a lot of these panospheres that, that they'd shot. So we basically put together a library of these um, for our editors to pull from when they needed establishing shots. And then based on whatever... Um, they selected, we would then send that to ILM and ILM would make it look period. Um, and that's that's something that we're doing throughout all of the episodes. Um, in episode 102, we ended up creating, uh, we, we, there's obviously the fight on the milk truck and um, we had a, um, a, a camera on a telescopic crane arm when we shot that. And so obviously we ended up shooting some pretty... Um, complicated camera moves there that we weren't able to shoot matching plates to go with. So we ended up creating uh, sort of a two and a half D domed environment there to to make that work. So um, in those types of cases where as we're shooting it and I'm realizing we've gone somewhere off the rails um, in terms of our schedule and time for what we have to achieve, then I'm then I'm able to go back to editorial and pull it as soon as we possibly can, knowing that the cuts are going to change, but giving us something to, um, to get, you know, Island working on as soon as possible. 
So obviously one of the plot points in the first ep and, and I dare say is going to resonate for the rest of the series is this idea of the bomb, the sphere, the, the um, which is to say, you know, could have been done, I guess, with a practical. Did you have something on set? Because obviously that's not a, a practical <laughs> element for all of the, uh, the look of it. Um, we did actually on the first episode, we did have something on set, but we mostly used that for reference in the end. I think there's possibly one shot where there's, there's part of it, of that element that's in there. But the thing about these explosions is that they weren't typical explosions in the sense that they, you know, you have an explosion and, and the event is over. These, these were explosions that then imploded onto themselves. So, the physics made it quite difficult for us to use um, very much in terms of practical elements. We used we used we used as many elements as we could that were shot practically from um, from the asset library of elements. Um, but obviously, at some point where the physics had to implode on themselves, then we were looking at um, obviously that all being CG. For the particle <laughs> effect stuff, was that some dedicated? Uh, ILM stuff or were we using Houdini what were you doing for that sim stuff yeah well you were using Houdini for that and actually um, that was a combination of ILM and base ILM I worked with ILM on the concept designs on that and we showed those to Lou Desposito and he was very happy with all of the concept designs and then um, actually the, the, the one sequence in the bathroom where she's disarming the nitramine bomb that um, sequence was done by base um, using Houdini, and it was it was a very it was probably one of the more difficult things that we did, just because we had some really specific behaviours that we wanted the the um, the gas that the nitramine bomb emitted to have, and we had we had conceived of this and we had shown the concepts to um, the executive producers and director, and everybody was really excited about it. And then actually, actually executing it, the bomb gave off two types of gas. One was like a heavy dry ice gas that fell down, and the other one was a more a, a, a nebulous gas that kind of floated up into the environment and filled the space. And so it, it became shot to shot, very iterative, um, you know, process to sort of get it working within the context of the sequence. And it took us a really long time. And, um, you know, Houdini is a great tool for particle animation. I'd say the one downside of it is that it isn't very iterative. You can't, you can't, you, you have, you know, you have, when you re-sim, it's quite a hefty process to do that. Because it, so, it is sim, so, the, you know, the, the nature of it is you've got to try and set up the right environment for the sim to do what you want. It's almost like directing with an active partner. Yes, exactly. So, so that was challenging, but we got, fantastic results in the end everyone was very very happy but that's the disarming what about the massive explosion at the uh at the plant yeah that was an interesting um sequence for us to shoot because well and you know and this is this is one of the challenges that we've sort of come up come up against you know coming from the marvel world feature world and then coming into um doing network tv is we're used to having more time not just not just on the back end, but on the production side of things too. So to plan and to shoot something like that, and you know, we ended up having to shoot all this in a day, or, or half a day. We have you have other stuff that you have to get, and so that that's quite challenging too. Is like you know, 
trying to shoot a sequence like that without visualization of what the visual effects are going to be and then, you know, not having the opportunity to necessarily go back and reshoot or, or change anything. So that sequence um, was challenging for a number of different types of reasons. Um, and, uh, and we ended up, we want, there was, there's that particular story that we wanted to tell, which was that the, that they're trying to drive away from this explosion and the, and as the explosion's imploding, it's pulling the car back towards the, um, towards the explosion event. And so we ended up actually working with base, um, uh, creating a CG car for the car being dragged backwards moment, because that wasn't really something that we could effectively achieve when we were shooting that, um, practically. And we did on the day shoot with, um, some, practical pyro elements, which, as I say, were sort of useful for reference and, and as for as little elements that we used here and there. But the main bulk of the explosion, um, we tried to, for the explosion part of it, reuse existing assets of explosions that were basically composited together, multi, multiple layers of, of, of plate elements composited together to create that. And then the, um, and then the, the, Refinery location itself was lidared to give us the geometry um, to work with to explode and implode. Um, so, so no sooner you perfected blowing stuff up on land that you have to, in the second ep, which obviously was screened uh, after the first, you have to, to blow up in water. And uh, and you end up with entire dry lake beds, which must have been an, like you must, you must you must have been like oh really? But then, like, can't we just do another one on land? I mean, it must have posed its own unique problems. Well, yes, yes, and no. Um, you know, it was it was sort of almost easier because we were able to. We had a little bit. We pre see this was we 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 learned a little bit in our eight days and, and our little bit of post on episode um, one hundred one and. Um, so I'd already read the script while we were doing 101 and 102 and we got a little bit ahead of the game with ILM boarding it. So we boarded it and then we prevised it. So, so by the time Joe Russo, um, came on to do episode 102, we, um, we had boards to show him. We had a conversation to have with him and, and obviously we boarded it in such a way that we felt it was achievable within the time frame that we had. And so... Um, so, you know, we got Joe's feedback on that and then we created a previs and then we endeavored to, you know, have everybody stick to and work with that, that previs design. So what that enabled us to do was even though, yes, it's this massive late bed explosion event, we were able to make it easier on ourselves by hiding the more difficult aspects of, of, of what you see in that explosion. So you, so from the moment you see the truck go over the cliff, that's a CG truck, it fall, falling into a, a practical water element, which we then added the, the depth charges beginning, these sort of nitramine bombs acting like depth charges exploding under the water. And then we cut back to a, a, the, the Peggy's POV, you know, where you're up on the cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we, and we're not having to necessarily see the explosion event from in, from inside of the water, we've kind of stepped back from it and there's this is blinding flash of light and then the the idea that we're selling is that the whole lake bed evaporates so 
you know, we, we, we were able to create this sort of fantastic event viewed from, like, uh, Peggy's point of view or over the shoulder of, of Peggy even um, and just kind of give it a slightly different perspective which actually helped to sell it so then you could see the you could see the explosion happen you could see everything turn to steam you could see all the trees being you know dragged into this vortex of the implosion but you didn't actually have to see a ton of the details of that if that makes any sense at all hey um because you come from a compositing background on set have you opted to go for green screen blue screen or are you doing a bunch of roto i mean especially given the time constraints like for car shots for example you can have like obviously a lot of episodic television in fact every form of entertainment has characters talking in cars it's a great place for exposition um like how do you solve those yeah that's a well, there's a lot of that mike we um <laughs> I actually said to the writers, can we have less conversations in cars, please? Because we were, you know, it was becoming a really large volume of work for us to do um, these car driving sequences, which we were shooting um, as green screens on stage. But it isn't just that you have to, um, you know, that you're shooting these on stage and green screen. You then have to acquire plates to go with it. And obviously, we're not in New York, and, and we're not in 1946, so <laughs> it, it becomes challenging just from that point of view alone. But yeah, we have a bunch of sets. We, we have two stages over at Disney. Um, we have uh, we have a, a bunch of standing sets there. We have a set for the SSR, um, which obviously um, there will be some green screen for the exterior stuff that you see there and the Automat Cafe where you see Peggy in a lot during the series is also um, a, a green screen set on stage. So um, we, have a, we have a large volume of green screen work as well. I mean, obviously shooting in cars is so convenient because you've got both actors facing forward to the camera. You don't have a lot of difficulty in having them sort of just talk to each other because that's what you do and finally it's perfect for you know <coughs> explaining where we're going and and chewing up uh, uh time without looking like you are but that being said are you literally just got a car on a green screen stage or yes we literally just have a car on a green screen stage um we have some advantages um photographically gabby is doing this fantastic um, gag by putting a um, a 1960s Dernier 10 Christian Dior stocking between the sensor and the lens. And so we have this beautiful look to everything that we're shooting. Um, well, that's that, interesting because you're, you're shooting on Alexa, right? We're shooting, yes, we are. We're shooting on Alexa. So we, we basically, we have this net in the camera and it gives us this very stylized look. It blooms the highlights in a very specific way. It does some very specific things. It has some very specific attributes in terms of the way that it looks. So, um, And that doesn't affect your green screen? Well, obviously we're not, obviously we're taking the net out when we're oh, shooting okay. on the green sure. screens. We're driving the camera crew completely crazy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then ILM is matching that look right. on all those effect shots, um, but it helps us, you know. And, and, and obviously, you're in a, you're in this car environment. Your focal distance is like four and a half, five feet from the camera to any of your characters, and so everything in the background is, you know, pretty much out of focus. And we and you get this. We're creating these beautiful bokeh effects 
um, you know, out there with everything that we're seeing. So, yeah, it's, it's a car on a green screen stage, and I think it's, it's fairly effective. And for your, um, and for your actual uh, technical pipeline, you're shooting not ProRes, which is obviously what most sort of ARRI projects have done in the past because it's obviously a sensible format, but it's not as good as what you can do. If you, I presume you're shooting RAW? We are shooting ARRI RAW. We've also been shooting, um, for, for the bulk of the show where it's drama and not visual effects, we're shooting um, ARRI RAW 16 by 9 But for some of the visual effects stuff, we're shooting open gate. Right. Uh, so that we have that extra image area to play with. Um, and we've also shot some plates with the red dragon. So, um, but, but yes, mostly we're just, we're, we're shooting, um, we're shooting six, 16 by nine area, well, which, which is done before for yeah. TV. No, it's not done for TV, but I was saying this plays into this thing because, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, was shot Ari Raw. So this is this whole idea of you really adopting a feature film mentality and a technical pipeline at, at that most sort of fundamental technical level um, rather than just sort of going for the slightly easier, perhaps less uh, less flexible way out. Yeah, we definitely didn't take the easy way out <laughs> on this for sure. Um, well, we're thinking about archival, you know, quality as well. Right. So... You know, I think we're on. I think we're on. We're in a, a place now where television is kind of the way a lot of things are going, right? So, um, certainly in terms of unique and interesting content, um, I think a lot of people are being drawn towards television or, or you know, cable for those reasons. Um, and feature feature films have become um, more formulaic, if you like, and so. Um, I think it is. A, I think it is a paradigm that's about to shift, and I think quality is going to be part of what happens within that shift as well. Well, Shana, I just so love talking to you, my friend. It's been terrific as always. I should point out for people listening that you are so kind. You are literally, it's a weekend in LA, but you're, I know as we're talking, you're getting files being sent to you because you're literally still in the middle of production. The fact you're taking time to talk to us, I just can't thank you enough. Oh, well, my pleasure, Mike. I really appreciate uh, talking to you always. Thanks to Sheena for joining us again on the FX Podcast. Before we close out, I'd like to thank our FX Insider members who support the site through their contributions. As a thank you for donations made as part of the FX Insider program, we give access to exclusive additional content, things like member-only articles, additional effects breakdowns, and more. Details can be found at fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. In addition to this podcast, the FX Podcast, we do two other regular podcasts. The first one is the VFX Show, which reviews visual effects and current releases, as well as classic films. And then the RC Podcast covers digital cinematography. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd also recommend our HD video podcast, FX Guide TV. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we also have a sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training with a new term just getting underway. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.